¡Viva México! ¡Viva México! some pretty big issues to tackle here. Immigration. I mean, AMLO wrote a book called Oye Trump. That means listen Trump. When the potential Democratic 2020 frontrunners are calling for the complete remo removal and really axing mm -hmm. of the immigration control program, ICE, that's really night and day with where Republicans are. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. So it's challenging to overlook the go-to nativism of Trump's campaigning days and not openly wonder how his legacy will affect diplomacy in the long term. Leon Krause posed this issue to Roberta Jacobson and Antonio Garza, two former U.S. ambassadors to Mexico, in a special panel co-hosted by Slate and the Texas Tribune. And both agreed that while it's troubling, the nativism is sadly not a new phenomenon. Leon and the ambassadors dove deeper into the history of the two countries' relationship, immigration, and why we shouldn't call our struggles with illegal narcotics and cartels a drug war. Today, we're giving the podcast to Leon's amazing conversation in Austin, Texas, with Roberta Jacobson and Antonio Garza. I would like to begin by asking you to describe the nature of the relationship between Mexico and the United States. More than a century ago, Mexican President Porfirio Diaz famously said, poor Mexico, so far from God, so close to the United States. <laughs> Alan Riding called us distant neighbors. Former Ambassador Jeffrey Davido wrote a book called The Bear and the Porcupine. I don't have to tell you which one is which. Do you agree with that definition. What's your definition of the relationship, Roberta? What's, what's it like? You know, I think in some ways, first of all, thank you, Leon, and thank you, Slate, for having us here. And uh, it's, it's always an honor to appear with Ambassador Garza. Um, <laughs> We're starting off this very diplomatic. <laughs> <laughs> some habits are hard to break. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I think it, it, it has described the relationship at times. I think there's certainly a, an imbalance in the economic might, um, there's a history that I think I've always thought Americans are in some ways too quick to forget our history. It's one of our greatest features, but also a, a failing, right? We, we start over the next day. Um, whereas at times Mexicans seem to live their history forever and not be able to let go. And, and the best would be someplace in the middle where we can know our history and respect it, but be able to move together beyond it. I don't think we are distant neighbors anymore. I really don't. I think demographics have changed that in the United States. Um, and in Mexico, it's not widely known that there are probably, because we don't have accurate numbers, somewhere between 1.6 and 1.8 million Americans who live in Mexico, Mexico full or part-time. Um, and I think the two countries have grown inexorably closer together, even when they don't want to admit it. Um, and that is for the good, in my opinion. And we should be and must be cooperating against all the challenges that each country have. So I think we're not distant neighbors anymore, but it sometimes feels like we go, we revert to old patterns um, at times of, of stress or crisis. Tony, what do you think the relationship has been like, historically speaking? Well, I, th there's obviously a lot of, uh, a lot of history here. Uh, you know, one of the, uh, 
a re recent commentators, I, I guess Andrew Seeley used this expression, and I kind of liked it. He says, we've moved beyond being distant neighbors, and now we're intimate strangers. Uh, and, and I think in a sense that that kind of sums it up in a little bit, because we, we do have this very unique and very close relationship, yet at times it seems like we don't have a terribly profound understanding of each other. And I think that in large part that's been driven for, you know, for, for many, many years, many decades, long preceding uh, probably our involvement in the relationship. And it was also, for me, characterized best by a word that I heard used in Mexico in 2002 that I didn't hear used much in the United States, and it was convergence. Mm -hmm. It talked about the convergence between uh, Mexico and the United States. And to me, that suggests something uh, somewhat natural, in a sense, yeah. driven largely uh, by, from my perspective and the way I view the world, by markets. Uh, the economics had allowed for a convergence. The flow of peoples had allowed for a convergence. The, uh, the very real dependency on each other had allowed for a convergence. And where government and policy had encouraged that convergence is when the relationship tended to allow for moments of increasing familiarity. And where at the governmental level we were at odds, the convergence would continue, but without the benefit of getting to know each other a bit better. So I, I would say history has kind of defined those moments where we've sort of peaked and valleyed, but the marketplace of people and the movement of product and the movement of people have allowed us really to continue along this path of of convergence and the rare, very real need for each other uh, on issues as diverse as uh, security and the uh, uh, dealing with any of the transnationals, whether they're transnational threats, transnational opportunities, transnational movements, uh, we're, there, there's that need. So it's an interesting sort of, and we do find ourselves uh, at, at a point that, there have been some challenges, and I think we've exhausted a you know a fair amount of the goodwill that might have existed uh, generally. Uh, but at the at that level of, and I hate to use because it sounds so, so cliched, but at that people to people level, I think it's yeah. a it's still a pretty solid relationship. So you you've said we're no longer distant neighbors. You, you spoke about uh, convergence, and yet in in July 2015 we saw the appearance of a figure we hadn't seen in decades, perhaps ever, in American politics. How, how did we get to Trump? And I don't mean that as a, as a, a provocation. How do you explain the success of Trump's anti-Mexican nativist rhetoric? You know, my own view, not necessarily being an American historian, um, but, but looking at past episodes of nativism or anti-immigrant sentiment, um, is that this is not necessarily a new phenomenon. It, it, it obviously feels strange and, to my mind, awful right now. I didn't necessarily live through previous ones. But it's not a new, unfortunately, it's not a new pendulum swing in the United States. No, it's quintessentially American, actually. Some of Nativism the, right. has always some been Some of the us. difference, in a sense, is that this is occurring as the economy is growing um, because of the unequal nature, perhaps, of that growth or the the places where it's growing, or, and this I think is a critical factor, the dislocation and the changes 
in our society that are taking place in work, in the kinds of um, environments that we operate in, the, the sort of segregation of different populations in the United States from each other, economically, culturally, um, ethnically perhaps. But I also think we have to be clear that candidate Trump and President Trump exploited something that existed. He didn't create it. He, he took advantage of sentiment that existed in the United States and that had begun considerably earlier, whether you look at, you know, Tea Party or, or other um, factors in the United States. And, and unfortunately, nativism and anti-immigrant sentiment has always been, in some ways, it's a, it's a, it's a shortcut. It's a lazy man's answer, and I mean that men or women, um, to whatever is affecting you negatively, right? And we, there's been lots of commentary on this. It's fairly superficial, right? This is, this is blaming the other. Um, and so it, it was very disturbing for those of us who believe deeply in this relationship to see that constantly, whether it was the wall or Mexican criminals and, 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 uh, you know, rapists. rapists as the sort of fallback position to rally the base when the relationship A is so much more complicated, B, is those stereotypes are entirely not true. And the vilification of Mexico, I think, symbolically vilifying, I think, in some ways, um, Latinos in general or Latin American countries, um, these are countries that we need very badly for our own challenges. I think one of the things that's bothered me the most is there's a general perception that Mexico needs the United States more than we need Mexico. The truth is, North America as an entity, and I'm a confirmed North Americanist, we actually all need each other to make this work. And Tony talked about transnational threats, I would argue, or opportunities. I would argue there's very little these days that isn't transnational, mm -hmm. right? And, and you can talk about rejecting globalism, but... As one rather well-known candidate said recently, you've got a 2,000-mile border with a country with whom you are working cooperatively on the threats to your national security. Why would you want to piss them off? Right? <laughs> it, 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 it's, it's both um, hateful and, I think, hurtful, but it's also not very good policy. And how we got here, I think, is to fail to examine, because it's hard, the changing nature of our own society and how we're going to succeed in this new century in markets that have changed, in industries and services that have changed as a whole, as Americans and as North Americans, instead of segmenting ourselves increasingly um, by whatever um, characteristic you want to choose. Tony, you're still a Republican? Mm -hmm. You're a Republican. So how do you, as a Republican, interpret um, Trump's nativism, anti-Mexican nativism? Well, uh, a, a couple of ways, and, and really picking up a, a bit on what Roberta said. I, I think nativism and a certain amount of populism has always been uh, in our politics and the use of issues that separate, wedge issues around... Uh, di different, whether it's immigration or trade or these things, they generally become a proxy for other frustrations that might be 
being felt in society. The, the, the nativism or the populism that I think we're seeing is largely a rejection of establishments. It's kind of a more of a, it, it's kind of almost synonymous around the world with anti-establishment feelings. And, you know, the, the, the point that I think you made, made is that Trump is not so much a cause, but a symptom of something underlying that is, that has driven that. And I think whether it was Brexit or some of the movements, uh, populism generally, whether it be of the right or the left, they were, they were generally driven by people's, initially by people's attitudes about, uh, immigration and the movements of, uh, of, of new peoples into different countries. Uh, you've seen that, you know, Merkel, she, her, her problems largely initiated with, with the immigration issue. And if you take a step back and you look really at the last 20 years or so, you see, I think, a couple of things that have accelerated the divisions. Uh, one is, you, you think about technology has provided a tremendous, tremendous advantages to, to many, many people. It has made us far more connected and movements more viral. At the same time, it's driven, I think, much, much larger disparities in terms of, you know, inequality of, of, of wages and wealth and these sorts of things. So people now understand and appreciate what those, what those huge disparities are mm -hmm. and are so connected. And, you know, you ask, am I still a Republican? Yeah, because I still believe in markets, but I think markets have to, have to recognize that they create their own obstacles when there is a sense that you are creating these huge disparities. In that sense, markets are, are no better than authoritarian governments. They create it by other means and deny other rights and privileges to populations. So I, I think we've, we've found ourselves here largely because we, we have driven ourselves to a point where we have these huge disparities and people are connected enough to understand them and there's this sort of in the wake of, you know, the financial crisis, in the wake of 9-11, in the wake of, of uh, you know, this, this sense of, of, of being challenged by others. These, these feelings have been brought to the, full, mm -hmm. to the fore. And rather than try to address the underlying, we're exploiting and using as wedge issues people's insecurities. And I think that's how we got here. Uh Let's 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 jump into into the 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 present relationship between Mexico and the United States. It took Trump 100 seconds, 100 seconds to begin bashing Mexico when he launched his bid for the uh, presidency in 2015. For a year, Mexico's government mostly mostly kept silent, uh, and then in in August of 2016, President Peña Nieto decided to invite then candidate Trump to Mexico City. You had just arrived as ambassador to Mexico. I'm sorry, uh, Roberta. Uh, what what went through your mind? Oh, bleep. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think, you know, it, it's always, it's an interesting phenomenon because while you have presidential candidates who get certain federal protection like Secret Service. In fact, even if both candidates had come to Mexico to visit, and both candidates did receive letters of invitation, although 
not sure they were conveyed in the same way. Mm -hmm. um, the embassy would have very little to do with that because they're still candidates. We, we get engaged when we've got current governmental, federal governmental officials, and the Secret Service, which has a pretty large presence in the embassy in, in Mexico, was involved in coordinating protection. But beyond that, we just, we don't get involved because people are still candidates. In Mexico, that was not understood at all. So everyone thought that I would A, know everything about this visit, be involved in it, and then have lots of views on it afterwards. So, the, <laughs> and the answer is I couldn't and didn't, um, any of those. But I, I obviously <laughs> was surprised. I learned about it before it became public, but only just. And, um, and it was unusual. Um, to say the least, both the fact of the visit and the way it played You're out. You're being kind. Yeah. yeah, it was, it was. Well, you know, the, the, there Go was. Go ahead, Tony. You're no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it was. I, and I, I have uh, lived in Mexico now 16 years from the time that I was uh, serving there. And I've, uh, as Leon mentioned, I've, I've uh, associated myself with a law firm. But I, I remember th thinking immediately as that was announced on relatively short uh, notice that uh, then-candidate Trump would be coming to Mexico, that that was just as, as a friend of mine from Big Spring used to say, Tony, that's just dumb. D-U-M, dumb. Uh, and, and as they stood there, in a way, it was kind of the... You know, President uh, Peña Nieto, the current president, had been on a on a cycle of downward, downward, downward uh, polling numbers in the wake of Ayotzinapa and the wake of the concession with the Chinese. There was a number of things scandalous and uh, suggesting some level of corruption that the Mexican people were not comfortable with. And he had chosen to invite, I thought, well, maybe there's some perverse political logic in it because his standing was at about 12% favorability in Mexico and Trump was at 9 he says, he's going to stand next to the only guy less popular than him in this country. Maybe that makes sense. Uh, As it turned out, not so much. Not so much. But, but it, it, was kind of, it was kind of funny in that sense because you just, it was one of those moments where you, you know, what are they thinking? Right. And there were so many moments For like that. For those podcast listeners, uh, Tony just banged his head. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there were so many moments like that. Uh, throughout that campaign uh, as related to Mexico. And, you know, the, the, as you said, 100 seconds coming down the escalator and the rapists and criminals remarks that, you know, it, look, if, if, you're, if, you're, if you're a guy like me living in Mexico and you grew up in South Texas and four of your grandparents were Mexican, uh, you, you, you kind of start to take some things personally. I mean, when you're invited to a party and you're told the piñata, you realize this is not going to be as fun as... It is for the rest of the kids here. Uh, so there, there were a lot of things going on during that campaign that I think initially, and Roberta, you, you saw the early part of this. I think Mexico and Mexicans generally were very good about distinguishing between Trump and the U.S. for a long time. And then as they saw less and less pushback against Trump, it started to merge a little bit in terms of... I agree with that. Just well, the, 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 we, were, we became the other. Right. And, and that's never healthy. And one of the things that has been really dangerous about this to me, and there's, there's lots of things that's been dangerous about the, the vilification of Mexico, but one of the things that's most dangerous is 
it, over the last sort of 30 years, NAFTA plus, but, but through lots of hard work, um, anti-Americanism in Mexico has been reduced significantly. Um, approval ratings of the United States in Mexico by the time President Obama left office were over 60%. And that was of the U.S. and the government and the whole way uh, of the relationship improving, strong support. That's just cratered. That has cratered. We're talking about an over 30% drop in 18 months. And it is the kind of support, broad support from, from Mexicans across socioeconomic levels that is very hard to achieve because of our history and really easy to lose. And that has implications for the ability of politicians in Mexico to engage in the kind of convergence and cooperation that we need. Um, and that was, to me, was one of the more tragic things. And so uh, there were so many things, as Tony said, that I watched from that visit onward where uh, in working with the Mexican government, in working with the foreign minister who was leading the relationship, I, I kept trying to figure out what what was this master plan. He must have a master plan because this just looks nuts. And, and there was none. Was that your conclusion? I, you know, my conclusion was there was a plan that was both overly ambitious and overly optimistic based on the Trump administration. I think there, there was a plan which was, okay, we'll hold our tongue for a certain amount of time. We will work on all sorts of things that you, the United States, want, things that are important to you and are by the way, good for us too, on security, on, on migration, on all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. And what we're going to get is a renegotiated NAFTA quickly and beneficially. How's that working out for you? Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Let me let me change topics uh, for a second. Uh, as we know, the relationship between Mexico and the United States can be productive and positive, but it can also lead to uh, deeply malicious dynamics. And that's what's happened with the drug trade for a long time now. Mexican supply of drugs meets American voracious demand of drugs. American supply of guns meets Mexican voracious demand for guns. Uh, do, do you think President Calderón was right in the way he handled the drug war, Roberta? That strategy of going after the drug lords, decapitate those uh, cartels that were established, that were just a few, just a handful of cartels, and now it has grown to 20, 25 cartels. What's, what's your, your opinion on, on how the drug war has progressed? Is it a drug war even? A war? Well, I, I've, I've always hated that term, the war on drugs. I, I, I never use it, and I, and I don't like it because I don't think it's an adequate or accurate descriptor of what needs to be done. Um, and it, it focuses on, on one aspect of this ruinous relationship um, in terms of narcotics. In terms of President Calderon and, and the way he, he launched and, and 
really Tony saw more of that than, than I did up close. I'm not sure he had many choices, right? Um, the, the, the one thing the state, any government, the state must do is have a monopoly of force and the ability to protect its people. And that was seen to be lessening in a few, not that many at the time, a few parts of the country in which cartels were challenging the state. Had taken the role of the state even. I'm not sure I think they had taken the role, but they were certainly challenging the state and, and suborning the state so that they could ply their trade. In parts of Michoacán, I think exactly. they had, Exactly, no? in particular in Michoacán, in Guerrero, in ways that, that weren't getting pushed back. The state was incapable in the local or the state level of reasserting its control. And so Calderón, I think, somewhat logically said, we, we cannot allow that to go unanswered. Now, I think that the problem from the beginning, from my perspective, has been a high-value target strategy, which to some extent worked in Colombia. Cartels did fragment to a point where you could, could go after them successfully. That phenomenon was totally different in Mexico. And having a high-value target strategy, which many Mexicans will tell you, We've now captured or killed something like 110, 115 of 122 targets. Well, okay, I think most of those people were bad people who should be in jail, but what what is the result of that? My, my view has always been you need a comprehensive strategy which includes economic, mm -hmm. which includes going after the money and supporting the communities. Um, it includes employment generation, and um, training and, and all of this, as well as an adequate police force that can um, that can the fight the drug traffickers. And that, you know, we've got a judicial reform process in Mexico that's been over eight years in the making to a to an oral adversarial system, which is still not taken root in many places, was not fully implemented. You have an anti-corruption system, which is one of the best in the world on paper and has been partially implemented at best. Mm -hmm. All of those things are necessary, along with what people call the hard side, with going after the, the bad guys. Um, and I think Mexico has been slow to recognize that that kind of an integrated strategy is necessary. Now, I also think that the U.S. and Mexico, unfortunately, have a little bit gotten back into this blame game, and I think Trump has, has fanned that. 31,000 people died in drug-related homicides in Mexico last year, right? One of the largest numbers in recent years, if, if not ever. Close to 70,000 Americans died of overdoses last year, 45,000 plus of opioid overdoses, in particular fentanyl and heroin. So let's not argue about whose society is being ravaged worse. People are dying in huge numbers on both sides of the border. Mm -hmm. And any resolution of this that looks only to one of the countries and doesn't add significantly more money in the public health sector for treatment on the U.S. side or a more comprehensive program in Mexico is going to fail. And so we've only seen partial responses. And, and I have yet to see 
either government, and I, I'm proud of what we, Tony and I, were able to do in engaging with Mexico for the first time in a cooperative way uh, under the Merida Initiative to have some joint uh, goals and joint strategies, but unless we can do better than we're doing now, we are doomed to continue, I think, failing at this. Yeah. Tony, I know that you want to jump in. Let me just ask, okay. add one variable to, the, to this conversation. Okay. So three out of four guns found in Mexico can be traced back to the United States. Mm -hmm. A quarter million guns enter Mexico illegally through the border every year. Let me add that variable to uh, the, this conversation again. Why hasn't the United States done more when it comes to guns? Can it? Good. Ask the Texan. Excuse me? Ask, ask the ask Texan. Ask the Texan. Yeah. There's no coincidences in my work. Well, <laughs> you know, really, it's just a failure to enforce even the laws we have in the books, quite frankly. We, we've not done it. Uh, we've not committed the resources. We've not uh, made it a priority. Uh, I mean, before you get into all, you know, discussions about Second Amendment and the role of guns in our society and whether they're, you know, however you feel about them, there's plenty of laws on the books that we're simply not prioritizing and enforcing, and I think you could start there. And and it kind of uh, uh, leads to the the, the 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 thing I was thinking as as Roberta was talking, and I agree with essentially everything uh, she said about the uh, one is I didn't like the metaphor of the drug wars uh, either uh, because it suggested something that you could win. I mean, I, I think ultimately it's something that. That if you're fortunate, you you can manage that. There right. can be uh, repercussions for certain types of activities in your society. Whether your approaches are uh, expanded role of the state or a decriminalization of certain drugs, as President Cedillo has suggested, or the kingpin strategy, ultimately it's going to revolve around the health of your country's rule of law. Your, your ability, I'm not talking about just to, to, to use the military and the role of the state, but rule of law broadly. What does your judicial system look like? What does your constitution look like? What do the safeguards look like for both the accused and the, uh, uh, and the prosecutor? What do the systems look like from arrest to holding to uh, trial to adjudication to incarceration if necessary? If you don't have healthy rule of law systems, everything else around it is working, if not with one hand tied to behind the back, perhaps both. I have to ask you about immigration, obviously. Uh, I want to ask you about Trump's immigration policy, a combination of draconian measures pushing immigrants into hiding, hoping perhaps for self-deportation, that uh, horrible concept, and an empowerment of ICE that has led to the deportation of thousands of people who have built lives in the United States. This, for me, is a, really a, a humanitarian crisis in the making. 78% of Mexican undocumented immigrants in the United States have lived in this country for at least a decade, many of them for far more. Those are the men and women who are now being targeted. So. Uh, What's the solution? I know it's a broad question, but is the solution uh, immigration reform? Is, is, that even, is that even possible in the current political climate in the United States? As former uh, ambassadors to, to Mexico, how, how do you deal with this very, very difficult, painful situation, Roberta? Well, I think, you know, you, you said, Leon, that, that 
it's a humanitarian crisis in the making. I, I actually think we've gone beyond the, the in the making part. I think it is a humanitarian crisis. And I think that, that Mexico and the U.S. as governments ha have got to stop talking past each other, in part because the largest group of undocumented migrants coming into the United States for the foreseeable future will not be Mexicans, right? Um, it may be Central Americans. There are, there are increasing numbers coming from South Asia um, through Central America and up into the U.S. And so, ironically, the U.S. and Mexico will increasingly have more in common on migration issues than they will have that divides them because they will both be receiving countries, Mexico and in addition a transit country. But ultimately, the and I know this sounds, again, a little cliche perhaps, there is only one way to solve a migration problem, and I'm not sure that I like calling it solving it because I think immigration into the United States is one of the things that that makes us great that that how we how we treat people coming in especially refugees and asylees how we treat newcomers is what makes them over a decade or a generation some of the strongest um Americans in the country mm -hmm. um who understand the values that some of us who've lived here for longer have become complacent about but but I do think that they're only, the only ways to address this issue are what are the root causes stimulating migration from the countries that are, that are uh, in migrating. In Mexico, that has changed over the years because of demographics. It's an aging population, and we know that people tend not to migrate undocumented beyond the age of 35, and because despite sluggish economic growth. There has been economic growth in Mexico, but it is a North American economic solution that, that helps that. But we look at what's happening in Central America with people migrating both for reasons of violence, uh, fleeing for violence, and also economic. And again, it, you know, you, you cannot wall your way out of these issues. You've got to attack the reasons people are leaving their homes. Most people, the vast majority, would prefer to stay in the countries they were born in. This is not an easy choice, as we see from the heartbreaking stories on TV. But we have to address with those countries why they're leaving. And in countries in Central America, as well as in Mexico, the failure of institutions, the weakness of institutions to protect people, to resist corruption, to reduce violence, is the fundamental crux of the issue. So the solutions that I that I believe in are longer term, um, which is not necessarily an answer to today, but the answer to today has to be one of... There's no um, immediate answer either. Well, I think the the immediate answer has to be to return to America's roots of being tolerant and accepting, even while recognizing that there are going to be some hard choices and people who don't have um, justified claims for asylum or refugee may be returned, economic migrants, et cetera. Um, 
but not to separate families and not to uh, try and reduce legal immigration in this country um, in ways that I think are not who we are about, and not to demonize the people who are coming en masse uh, as as one category of people, I think, which is which is also really damaging to the overall policy. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Tonya, I, I want your your uh, opinion on uh, on Lopez Obrador. Uh, let's talk briefly about the future. In a couple months, Mexico will have a new president, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. He won the July first election in a landslide. He is, to put it mildly, not a man naturally interested in foreign affairs. Uh, he wants to sell the, the the airplane of the Mexican president. Uh, which well, I think he, I think he's had gonna, a couple of delays lately in commercial uh, right, airports. He, so he, he, he enjoys them very much. We think that he, <laughs> I, I'm not sure. I think it's a, it's an excuse for him not to travel abroad. But uh, yeah. what what do you make of of Lopez Obrador? You know, I I I think he is much like we're seeing around the world. He's a reflection of Mexicans' frustration with sort of the status quo and what they perceived as parties that were not representative of of their kind of needs and, and aspirations. And I, th I think essentially that's it. That, that's, that, that was the wave. This was, this was a pretty phenomenal election in Mexico. Uh, this was one that looked early on like the, certainly the, the country was moving in that direction. But then when he focused his campaign on security and corruption, I think he hit a real nerve out there, uh, you know, much like you can say, just we were talking about President Trump a moment ago, there was a frustration in the country that he tapped a nerve and he, and he rode. And I think if you look at uh, President-elect Lopez Obrador's approaches, they are somewhat nativist in a, in a sense. I mean, a, a kind of, or maybe I should say nationalist, more kind of an appeal to people's sense of solidarity, and we can. Now, I'm going to try to make a couple of points quick that I think are the good news about this. Uh, the, the good news is, from the standpoint of what it says about the Mexican people, I think it reflects wanting to hold government more accountable. It reflects an expansion of the middle class and a participation increasingly of a younger class. It suggests that they see Mexico as a country that can be far more than it is, and I think it's a wonderful country, but 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 can be far more than it is. So I think that's good. Ideologically, there's a sense that President-elect Lopez Obrador is somehow, quote, a man of the left. I don't even know what that necessarily means uh, anymore. If you look at the team he's put together, I think his uh, foreign minister, Marcelo Ebrard, the designee, uh, is a very thoughtful, very smart, very capable person. When I worked with both of these individuals, first President-elect Lopez Obrador and then Marcelo, while they were the essentially the mayors of Mexico City, I found them very uh, practical and pragmatic about their approaches uh, on on uh, on issues of security. While they valued more discretion in how we talked about issues of, of our coordination, they they appreciated the need for coordination with the United States. 
this transition and the negotiation of NAFTA where the the uh, transition team and the current administration have been somewhat seamless in their approaches, I think is actually pretty encouraging. Uh, the fact that Trudeau apparently called on President-elect uh, Lopez Obrador to intercede somehow with the Trump administration on NAFTA suggests that they see him as a potentially uh, reliable interlocutor. I so, never thought I saw that. Yeah, I, yeah. That. I never thought I'd see that. There's a lot of things that we never thought we'd see and we're seeing. So... You know, what, I, I'm generally encouraged, I think, by, by, by the direction and the appointments. Uh, but I, I, one thing I know is very clear is that this is what the Mexican people wanted. They, they have imbued in the president-elect the notion that this is somebody that is not part of the establishment, although he's been around politics for 30, 40 years, but he's not part of the old sort of sense of and it's a reflection of their frustration. So, you know, I, I, I'm generally encouraged uh, because I, th I think that that's how democracies should work. People should get the government they either want or deserve. Uh, he's ha and, he and I he sounds convinced, Roberto. He sounds I, convinced. I, no, I'm trying to be objective. He's an optimist. Listen, during a campaign, he's an optimist. and he's been through a couple of campaigns, and we've seen campaigns all over the world, if you were left only with the image and think somebody is going to govern entirely on how they've been defined by their opponent, yeah, you can be pretty concerned here. But I think between the last couple of campaigns and being defined alternately as Mexico's version of Hugo Chavez or Mexico's version of somebody, let's see what the version of himself looks like for a while. Ojalá. Um, I, I hope so. I mean, I, you know, I, I think Tony's right in terms of where we, what we've seen in the campaign and where we have seen appointments. My concern, and, and it, it will remain just a concern for now until, until he takes over and we see what happens, is that he's not an institutionalist. And as boring as that sounds, I'm an institutionalist. I believe in strengthening institutions of democracy that we are, and, and most countries should be countries of, of laws and not men. It's the way you, you mm -hmm. guard against those, those expansive powers. And, and Mexico, like most Latin American countries, has a, a very, very strong presidency to begin with, right? It's a, it's a heavy and a history role. of strong Correct. individuals. So, so just as Tony said, you know, it was Zedillo who actually said when asked, um, what are Mexico's top three, uh, problems or top three things they have to address? And his answer was rule of law, rule of law, and rule of law. Mm -hmm. And I think that's true. And I hope that, that President Lopez Obrador, uh, as of December 1, Will understand and 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 support the idea of strong, transparent, democratic institutions, even though uh, those are are also designed to be a check on the president. Yeah, and it, it talking speaking of checks, his his and, and I think on some gut level, this is what creates some continuing real kind of uh, uh, uncertainty or insecurity in people. His margin of victory was so overwhelming that he does essentially control everything, uh, everything, right down to and including in states where his party does not have the governorship. They, in many cases, have majorities in the legislature, which means the safeguards, if you will, in terms of things gotcha. as profound as constitutional reform may not be there. 
And so really it's going to see, to Roberta's point, how much of an institutionalist is right. he really because the, there are no safeguards The out safeguards, there. to the extent they exist, are in a judiciary yeah. that's not known for being the strongest and most independent. So. A little uneven. And that's it for today's show. So what do you think? We kind of love feedback. I mean, good feedback, like praise. And you can praise us by tweeting at RealTrumpCast and tweet at me on page 88. What do you want us to talk about next? Yes, we're on Twitter and we're listening. And again, our Twitter handle is at RealTrumpCast. Now, here's where I shame you. Are you not a member of Slate Plus yet? That's Slate Memberships Program, and you have to join. You'll get Trumpcast ad-free, bonus episodes just for members, and more. And it's cheap. Just visit slate.com slash plus, or you hate America. Our show today was produced by A.C. Valdez and Melissa Kaplan with help from Shirley Chan. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.